Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. Or is it Saint, Witch, Mommy, Sister, Party, and Lucky? The end. Let's talk about Catherine of Aragon. Catherine was born on uh, December 16th, 1485. Her parents were King Ferdinand of Aragon and his wife, Queen Isabella. Wait, have you heard of them before? They're, they're best known for two things. Ferdinand and Isabella are known for backing Columbus's voyage to the New World, and they're also known for the Spanish Inquisition. It was bad. But their story is actually kind of interesting. We'll just take a couple minutes before we get into the life of Catherine, because it kind of sets the stage for how she was raised. Spain was kind of like we talked before about Germany being a bunch of little countries that made up one country the way we think of it. Spain was the same way at the time, and Ferdinand and his family were over one part, and Isabella and her family were over another part, which was larger, yes? Mama's <laughs> portion was a lot bigger yeah, and a lot more full of money. And she is basically controlled most of her life by her brother, who is the king. Um, and he wanted certain marriages for her for political gain, as was the way of the time. And she kind of refused them. And behind his back, they, they set up this arranged marriage between her and Ferdinand, and she snuck out of the castle. They they got married in secret, and it was her second cousin. That's not so uncommon. Second no. cousin? Hey, they're practically strangers. I know. These times. <laughs> That's true. That's true. So now we have these two powers that have joined together, and they are joint rulers. They're known as the Catholic monarchs. Isabella was over Castile, and Ferdinand was over Aragon. They took their children on campaign everywhere. Now, on campaign sounds lovely, but basically what they were trying to do is to expel the Moors, M-O-O-R-S, i.e., the Muslims, out of Spain. Right. Um, southern Spain had been occupied by the Moors for a long time, so they were going to go ahead and get rid of them. And they're taking over the territories. So they take the kids on tour. There's five children. This is not even plain either because yeah. seriously, their tents were set on fire and um, Juana, one of the daughters, was in the tent at the time and had to be pulled out and rescued. This is not like they're in a safe place remote from the fighting all the time. Right. Sometimes they were and had they just taken over a castle, they had some luxurious times in there being dressed by the servants of the castle, being wrapped in luxurious cloths and drenched with rose water, listening to the fountains. I mean, it it could be a lovely experience. Which is probably made even more lovely by the non-lovely times that they spent out in the wilderness. Yeah, so she knew how to camp, but camping with cloth of gold tents is not the same. No. It's like those safaris that you can go on uh -huh. where you have a butler that wears white gloves that serves you things and you're in your tent. Nice. Whatever you call it. Is that, that your idea of camping? I'm not so much. I don't know. Camping. My heels would stink in the sand. I know. My heels would stick in the mud. That's no good at all. But um, Catherine was descended from an Englishman named John of Gaunt, a famous redhead. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Catherine, if you're picturing the lady, Maria Doyle Kennedy, that plays Catherine of Aragon in The Tudors. Dark-eyed, olive skin. No, that is not what she looked like. Catherine was actually a ginger. She had reddish blonde hair and blue eyes and fair skin. And she was pretty little. She looked more like Dakota Fanning than, than Catherine Zeta-Jones. 
That's very good. Yes. Could you just for a second talk about the Tudors? I think Maria Doyle Kennedy's, the way she carried herself in that was very, probably pretty accurate. So ever since little Catherine was three years old, since just when she could talk and walk and know herself, she had known that one day she'd go across to a land called England and she would marry a boy named Arthur and become eventually the Queen of England. So not only was she an infanta of Spain, she was to be thinking of herself as the Princess of Wales from a very, very young age. So for her whole life, this is what she was going to, she knew she was going to do that. And this is in her makeup. It's yeah. just a fact, like, oh, this is the color of my hair, mm-hmm. these are the names of my sisters, and one day I will be Queen of England. Just a fact. <laughs> yeah. No more special or unspecial than anything else. That's true. I wonder if Catherine, current future Queen of England, thought that. <laughs> Guessing no. No. Uh, but the whole family, Isabella and Ferdinand's children, were all going to be married off to into royal political marriages. It was just the way things were done. To that effect, the parents gave their children a grand and thorough education. I mean, even the girls. There's four girls and a boy. Latin, history, law, law, let me say that again, religion. <laughs> well, actually, let's go back to that. It's civil law and church law they were given education in. It wasn't just... I'm just saying, later, people knew what they were talking about. Yeah. <laughs> is all I'm saying. Um, and interestingly enough, Isabella had a thing for Arthurian romances of the days of King Arthur and Lancelot and Guinevere. King Arthur was the namesake of Prince Arthur. Who her daughter was going to marry. Mm-hmm. Interestingly. Well, she, well, she didn't learn English. Uh, isn't that weird? <laughs> like she knows where she's going. She knows the language of the country. But that is not, I mean, she's learning French and Latin, which he was also learning the Latin at that point. So that's how they communicated. But still, it was like, okay, I guess she'll pick it up when she gets there. I thought, that, yeah, that's a very big hole. And it's also pretty common mm-hmm. in our stories that we're talking about princesses don't learn foreign language, and you're thinking, someday she's going, right? I mean, can we not arm her for the battle? (laughs) Oh, well. But also, interestingly, they were taught what I would call very housewifely skills. Mm -hmm. Baking. Why would a future queen of England need to learn how to cook? Spinning and weaving. Yeah, sewing. She made all of her husband's shirts. So I thought that was a very, very well-rounded Education. And Arthur and Catherine would correspond in letters written in Latin. I mean, they weren't particularly romantic <laughs> no. or flowery, and they were oh, more like a lesson that they were learning. You know, let's write this letter. Oh, well, who should we send it to? Well, let's send it to your pen pal in Spain. <laughs> so. Now, um, unlike in England, where basically the second people were born, they were given their own establishment and sent away, Ferdinand and Isabella's children were with them so long. Daily they saw them. (laughs) Daily. They were very involved in their education, and I can only imagine that when a daughter leaves to go get married, it's harder to say goodbye to someone you've been with every day their whole life than, oh, this one girl who I saw when I gave birth to her 12 years ago is going to get married on paper to some other guy on paper, so she's just going to live in a different distant place. That seems really easy to me. Catherine was the last to go, and she left Granada, which, can I please talk about Granada? Please. I Granada, love this story. Granada was a city that they had conquered and, and retaken, and it was one of the sites of 
some of her fondest childhood memories. You know, the the tinkling fountains and the calmness of the court. And, and this was one of the nice places that they took This was over. one of the very nice places. And um, when princesses come to a foreign country, they are asked to have a badge, like a like a brand, like a brand a identity, logo. a logo. Um, and she chose as hers the pomegranate or as it is in Spanish, the Granada, to remind her of her happy days there. And interestingly, here's a note for English speakers. (laughs) The word grenade, think about what a grenade looks like, Mm -hmm. is Granada also, and it means pomegranate. (laughs) So she left Granada in May, and it took her three months of hot and dusty travel to get from Granada to her ship. Three months. Yay. Well, and, you know, it's not just her. It's, I mean, you imagine, like, it's her on a horse. How long could that take? No, this is a whole entourage. You know, hundreds of people had to accompany her. It had to be a matter of state. It was a matter of pride to send her off well. But they had to turn back due to storms once they had finally embarked. And she did not set foot on English soil until October 2nd, months and months after she set off. And we complain about a two-hour delay in the airport. (laughs) But she spent her whole life on the road, so to speak. So I guess maybe that was just another leg of her journey, you know? So she proceeded to London slowly. Again, pageantry is the key. Pageantry is the key. People in every town would rush out to see their future queen. Towns would put up every kind of festival and best foot forward to welcome her. She had 50 ladies with her. They had slaves with them, too. Oh. Moorish slave girls they had. And they traveled with a pack of laundresses. As you would, I suppose. Saying, when can I travel with a pack of laundresses? I, I mean, besides myself, of course. I know. Yeah. And the Spanish king and queen had had a condition that Henry the Seventh and his son not see her before the wedding. It was not done. She was not to be seen by these men of her new family. And Grandpa King, what? What's wrong with her? And he took off and by himself. Uh, and went and basically busted into her tent and demanded to see her. And everybody's like, no, 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 it is not possible. No, no, no. And he goes, well, you tell her to come out or I will go in there and see her in her bed. It won't be the first time I've seen a girl in her bed. <laughs> you need to tell her to come out right now. And he like broke protocol and it was in her face and she handled it well, I think. I mean, she handled it well. She came out and he was very relieved that she was quite beautiful. Uh-huh. Didn't apologize no, for his no. behavior. In fact, he went and got his son who was back on the wrote a bit and said, okay, that's right. let's go ahead. And they had, you know, a lovely feast and everything. And it had to have rattled her, but she never showed it. And that's uh, her whole life. She was like that. Things would rattle her and she would keep it all inside and comport herself as a future queen. And that's how she'd been brought up. Well, I was going to say she was brought up in, during a very tumultuous time. So being level headed in the face of that type of calamity is something that was, she learned at a very young age from her mom, who also did the same thing. So it's going to serve you well, Catherine. Well, and she was kind of lucky in that she got to marry a prince of her own age and wasn't married to someone 30 or 40 years older than her for political reasons. He was intelligent. He was trained in management. He'd been given, you know, he was the prince of Wales, which meant you live in Wales and you run that area as your training. Right. 
This is on-the-job training. That's right. really awesome. Like, she was raised knowing that she would be the queen of England someday. He was raised knowing he would be the king. Yeah. And he was kind, and it could so easily not have all gone that way, by the way. Oh, yeah. I mean, she could have been married to a stinking, lecherous psycho, but she wasn't. Yes. So that was good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So signs of relief all around. She thought his appearance was nice. He thought her appearance was nice. They were young people together. The ceremonial entry into London was ex- exotic as possible. They made it, I mean, they dressed in full Spanish dress, exotique, dripping veils everywhere, and she rode a mule into town rather than take a carriage like everyone expected. She rode a mule into town. All the side saddles faced the wrong direction. What is happening? You know, they just made it all just a spectacle. Mm-hmm. Her entry into the city was something to behold. And guess who escorted her across London Bridge? Prince Henry, age 10. Yeah. Given that big responsibility. That is a big responsibility. He was the royal representative for her trip across London Bridge. Little did they know that one day, that little boy who was so happy to see her and called her dearest sister would one day (laughs) be her husband. I wish I was marrying you. <laughs> there was a very cute scene. There is a fictional book, fictional, and I add again, uh, historical fiction called The Constant Princess. And the meeting of little Prince Henry and his new sister mm-hmm. was adorable. He's so cute and he's so excited to be trusted with this great responsibility. Because uh-huh. you know those second sons. The second sons are the ones that are jolly and there's no pressure. They're not, yeah, he was not going to grow up to be the king of England. He was going to grow up to work in a church. Yeah, there was no expectation. He had all the advantages of having money thrown at him. And a bigger advantage, he got to stay home with his sisters and his mother and have a family life. Mm -hmm. Whereas his brother got sent away to manage his kingdom. So he's had, you know, women all around him that were so charmed by his tactics of, Mm -hmm. you know, his capering about of being the cute little boy. And he was a happy little dude at this point. So happy little dude carefully brings his future sister-in-law. Yes. So she... To the wedded day. Yes. And on November 15th, she was married in white, which was not traditional at the time. No. But just, she happened to choose... It was your best dress. You would choose your best look. Right. Basically. So after much feasting and dancing, etc., the couple were publicly put to bed together. <laughs> Can you imagine? No, I can't. Thanks for coming. Thanks for the presents. Bye-bye. And then privacy. But, I mean, we saw it with Marie Antoinette. It's a big party. So at least they left the room, you know, at last. But after such a long day, I mean, who knows? Who knows what happened? Yeah, what happened? We can we can say okay that day probably you know it's possible it didn't nothing happened. Yeah, they're both teenagers and they're exhausted and this all the months of preparation, the life of preparation, it was finally done. Let's sleep. Okay, we can accept that. Yeah, and so, you know, I can see that, but, you know, they're both, you know, 16-ish. They're both attracted to each other. They knew what was expected of them. This princess traveled with a christening robe, for God's sake. (laughs) I mean, it was pretty clear. Yeah, yeah. I can understand the first night. Oh, yeah, yeah. Maybe the second. Yeah, yeah. And he came out the next day, Mr. Boasty McBoasterson, Mm -hmm. and, whoa, it's thirsty work having a wife. Uh, I have been in the midst of Spain, he said. Vomit sound here. Insert vomit sound. So, uh, yeah. It sounds so like a teenager today, though, doesn't it? Yeah, it totally does. Like, it's a good business having a wife, dude. 
Um, you know, so but common sense would dictate it probably wasn't much of a problem afterwards. Uh, you know, whatever. So at this point, they need to pack up their gear and head off to home. They need to go to their new house, which is the government seat of the Prince of Wales. <laughs> their castle. Ludlow Castle in Wales. It was a bustling little market town. It was no... It was New London Palace, certainly. But um, author Philippa Gregory um, has jokingly said, there's nothing else to do in Wales at that time of year. So if they weren't in bed together, I would be very surprised. Yes. But um, the thing is, in this big castle, Arthur had cozy little rooms heated with big fireplaces. It was probably a very comfortable place to be. Castles mm-hmm. are not no. typically very comfortable. But the, I can imagine those little rooms with the big roaring fireplace, and they're cozy together, and they both want to read, and it seems yeah, like it would be nice. Uh, yeah, they're from similar background. I mean, different cultures, but similar educational backgrounds, mm-hmm. and they probably had a lot to talk about and that would attract them together, mm-hmm. you'd think. And his gentleman of the chamber constantly referred to collecting him in his nightgown. We don't know what they were doing. We know what Catherine claims later they weren't doing. All came crashing down, this happy scene, uh, only a few months later, yeah. five months later. Within, yeah, within six months of their marriage, all of a sudden they're both sick. There's a illness that's going around called the sweating sickness they both come down with it although she survives it starts with cold shivers and then severe body ache followed by massive sweating and delirium and exhaustion if you survive the first 24 hours you might survive but you go fast it's like outbreak remember that movie (laughs) outbreak it's fast how terrifying to know it's around though I know. And then also to have no idea. I mean, germ theory was, germ theory was non-existent. So just imagine like the vapors are in the air and they're around you and is it going to get you? And just like the terror must have been horrible. Yeah. And it also could be, bizarrely, they say that that could be a fluke that they were both sick and that he died of testicular cancer. Well, if he did have testicular cancer, that would explain they're not consummating. So it's still up in the air. Yeah. All that. Yeah, it's a big mystery. But, but it all it, ended up the same way. Yeah. So Catherine was a widow, and her family and his family immediately began making plans for shifting her marriage to the second son, Henry. It was, you know, common sense. It occurred to everyone. Mm-hmm. Well, there's another one. Let's just bump down. It needed a dispensation because technically, if you marry someone, you are their full relative. Like, right. So, so Henry she was Henry's sister mm-hmm. at this point. Although. That was paperwork, yeah. because Catherine's own sisters, two of them had been married to the same man, and after both of them died, he mm-hmm. married his niece. Yeah. So the Pope was going to rubber stamp it. It's totally fine. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's cool. I know this guy. But they did keep her in seclusion for almost a month to see if she was pregnant. They didn't name yeah. Prince Henry the Prince of Wales right away, because if Catherine had a son, he took precedence over Prince mm-hmm. Henry. Right, but she didn't. Mm-mm. Because she claimed they didn't. Well, that's good. <laughs> that's right. It was a battle of wills between Catherine's parents and Henry VII. Was this relationship consummated? Well, then she needs to get her widow's money now, mm-hmm. and she needs to come back home. And End of story. Give her her money. 
And Henry the Seventh is kind of uh, tight with the coin. Yeah, he's not letting money go out. One of the authors I read said that he was on a first name basis with every coin in his treasury. <laughs> That's funny. So she, so is she the Dowager Princess of Wales, or was she just never technically married? Now Catherine herself claimed she was still a virgin, and so did her scary chaperone lady, um, Donna Elvira. I just think that's interesting because that was totally against her family's interest to claim that. So why would she, like, why would she claim it if it wasn't true? They wanted her to be a widow. Yes. Oh, I see. A a legitimate widow. And she claimed she was not because she was never really married to Prince Arthur, Hmm. even back then. But gosh, two teenagers in bed for six months. Again, um, quoting author Philippa Gregory, who's known for historical fiction, but she says that she believes that this woman, this good, honest woman, told one massive whopper of a lie in her whole life, and that was it. Hmm. And then she had to keep it. One lie. Kids, don't lie. See what happens? You could end up married to Henry VIII. (laughs) So they ended up, common sense prevailed, and they bound her to Henry VIII. He was still underage, and she was not. Now, it's very common for an underage marriage, once it gets to the point where you're of age, you can repudiate it if you want, saying, well, this was contracted without my consent. Right. So Henry was still underage. He had a backseas plan, and she did not. No. She had this terrible (laughs) uncertainty. Not only terrible uncertainty, but not the most great of living conditions, Mm -mm. because Henry VII is not forking out the dough for her right now Mm -mm. at all. So she's living, even though she's titled, she's having to borrow money to pay for her bills. She's borrowing money from the Spanish ambassador. And it's even worse. Her mother died, and with it, the majority of her father's fortune went into a brother-in-law's hands, like out of her father's control, kind of. Mm -hmm. And his ability to pay for her was very, very far down, too. And so nobody wanted to pay for her. Everyone's like, no, that's yours. No, your responsibility. No, your responsibility. So she basically went from royal residence to royal residence, living in whatever apartments were available. Sleeping on couches all across England. Yeah, basically couch surfing. Yep. Um, yeah. Um, so toward the end of this period, which lasted for seven years. Yeah, seven years she's living like this. Toward the end, Henry VII even mainly said he had no responsibility to feed her. He regarded it as alms for the poor to feed her. Nice. And she had care of these dependents that needed her. She had a very big responsibility to take care of people, and she just couldn't do it. She was scrabbling. Yeah. I can understand her knowing how to live from place to place because that's how she was raised. Mm -hmm. But the hardship of having to pay her bills Mm -hmm. wasn't something she was raised having to do. So. And here she is. Think about how bad this is. Since three, she's known she's going to be the queen of England. And now here she is at 24 in this horrible situation. And finally, I think she just cracked. She had all her stuff packed, and she was just going to go back to Spain and try her luck. I know. Just go. It's got to be better than At least it's warmer. (laughs) And then, saved by the bell, Henry VII died. Henry VIII is now next in line, and he is king. And one of his first acts is to marry her. Now, why did he marry her? Was it obligation? Was it duty? Was it politics? Was it love? He'd known her for a very long time. It could have been any of those things, and we would just have to speculate. But they did, according to things that I saw, they did seem like they loved each other early on in their marriage. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
Well, and he was truly admiring of her. I mean, they're probably both in love, and he got to be the hero. Think about how he rescued his friend and, mm-hmm. you know, her proximity to these royal children, because she's always, like, basically having to live wherever they live just to save money. She's been around Henry a long time, and then their official betrothal made it okay for them to be together a lot. Just hanging out. Just right. being friends. Right. I really do think it was a love relationship. Mm-hmm. I mean, he could. there was other women that he could have married that he would have gained more politically. He had a backseat plan, like you said. Yeah, he yeah. could have gotten out of it, but yeah. he didn't. The I coronation decided. was shortly afterward, and if I were to guess, just from reading these descriptions, the purpose of this coronation was to spend as much of Henry VII's dragon horde of money <laughs> as they could possibly throw at it. I mean, jewels, thousands of yards of velvet, even horses were dripping with, like, let's call it expense. Okay. <laughs> when a horse has jeweled coats yeah. on. Yeah. You know. It's a big party. It is a big party. And even better, if you were to call Central Casting and go, hey, um, I need an attractive young king and queen. Can you just send me some models? These are who would you would get. Yeah. <laughs> you would get this really tall, red, gold-haired, muscle agility man. Right, because at this point, Henry's got quite the physique. He's mm-hmm. he's a good-looking guy. Even dudes that hate him said he was the handsomest prince in Christendom. So, and yeah. she's beautiful. And she is beautiful. And they're fair-haired, and I can just imagine the sunlight bouncing off their jewels and their golden hair. Yeah. Pretty couple. I would definitely say that Catherine's ramen noodle and mac and cheese days are over. <laughs> Yay! So to speak. Yeah. Or what would it be at that time? Like gruel and manchet bread or something? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but, I don't know, but you know what? It crossed my mind. I'm like, I wonder what they're eating. I wish somebody could get a hold of this video. You guys would love it. It's the Super Sizers Go Elizabethan. And I caught it on the cooking channel on my DVR. But that doesn't give you a reliable way to find it. It is this, unless you come to Beckett's house. Unless you come to my house. Find it at her DVR. But yeah, they, uh, I'm not sure they actually vomited, but they did get tansy poisoning at one point. But it's this restaurant critic and a comedian, and they dress and eat mm-hmm. from actual menus of the day. And one of them is Elizabethan, which is close enough to this period yeah. that, you know, that you can really see what they were eating. Must find. Because that's the BBC, right? It is. Yeah. It was the BBC, yeah. And they started out, they have an Edwardian one. They have Mm -hmm. one um, based on Marie Antoinette. Mm -hmm. They have one from the 1950s. I mean, it's so interesting. And all of them would go along with our podcast. Come on, Cookie Channel and BBC, make them available on Netflix. Yeah, that would be fantastic. Um, Although her years of struggle were over, I think Queen Catherine never really forgot that seven years of struggle and fear. I kind of, that she had just been through. She did keep it all inside. It strengthened her religion to no end, that oh. period of her life. And, you know, biblically, periods of time like this are things that, as a Christian, would strengthen you. Huh. Strengthen your faith. I mean, it's, and Jesus went out in the desert for 40 days, you know. There's, biblically, it's there, so... So maybe she thought so it was maybe a she thought exactly. This is God isn't letting me do something that I can't handle because He has given me these challenges. He has great faith in me. Wow. Okay. See, I there know. you go. That's it. <laughs> well, she had all that inside. Outside, it was masks and joust and feasts. So mine. I mean, it was the high life. So at long last, love and luxury mm-hmm. and wonder of wonders. She was pregnant. Yay! Although, yeah. Um. 
the first daughter is stillborn. And then there was some cockamamie story that she was still pregnant with this baby's twin. Yeah. And it was some kind of phantom pregnancy, and they convinced her, the doctors did. These doctors, man, you should just get a vet. <laughs> At this point. But that, that, I mean, that's happened. Yeah. That, so anyway, so child, child number one is stillborn. Child number two is a boy. <gasps> Yay! He's born on New Year's Day. There was exultation in the land. The there's king a- had an heir. Yes, there is a big party. And um they christened he was Henry. Uh, of course he was. Yeah. Who's named after oh his father. Anyway. They actually <laughs> hired servants to lay non slip mats mm-hmm. all the way to the church <laughs> so that his nurse who was carrying him to the baptism would not slip. And she didn't. And in a custom that many women would welcome now, it was a custom for all new mothers of royal and aristocratic families to remain in their room for 40 days. Speaking of 40 days. I know. Well, like, yeah, that's a pretty biblical number. Lots well, anyway, in 40s. so they're, they're 40 days in the room, chilling with their ladies, no men allowed. Sounds awesome sauce to me. After which, you were brought to church and washed of your sin of childbirth and the uncleanliness. Well, that I know. I'm just like, okay, patriarchal society. Good. Good for you. But it was called being churched. And so after 40 days, the mom was out. And there were tournaments and pageants for days. Then they received some very bad news. And... The partying stopped. Immediately. Because poor little Henry, baby Henry, heir to the throne, died. 52 days after he was born. So close, and yet so far. So she gets pregnant again, and this one is actually another miscarriage. Um, child number four is is another son, but he dies within weeks of his birth. And child number five is Mary... Uh, who does live. She is the only child that survived. She's, and then there's two more pregnancies, no living children. In nine years, she, she's had seven pregnancies and one child. And it's a girl. So that's all the pregnancies, but let's backtrack a little bit to right after Henry was born. So we've seen Catherine the Queen so far. We see her as loyal and stubborn and housewifely. Um, with her stitching and taking care of hubby. Like making he would break, his shirts. Making his shirts. He would break in and say that he was so hungry and was craving this one kind of meat. And she would just like, make sure it happened. You know, she was, mm-hmm. she was 50's housewife, basically. <laughs> um, but what we have yet to see, she was already his trusted advisor. Mm-hmm. He came to her with everything and she had very good advice. She was actually a good envoy for her father. For right. interests of Spain. Yep. She was very politically active. She's not just sitting there embroidering things and making shirts. And what we have yet to see still is Catherine, warrior queen. So so there's three players, Spain, France, and England. And it seems like you could never, ever, ever get three of them playing nicely together. Like three kids on a play date. Yes. So it was Spain and England versus France right now. Papa of Catherine and Catherine were behind Henry VIII's move to invade France, but Henry VIII wanted war anyway. He wanted fame. He wanted glory. This is how kings get remembered. And so he's all about it. But the problem is, who's going to babysit the country when he's gone? Um, Antonia Frazier, in one of her books, said, The king and his council forgot not the old pranks of the Scots, which is ever to invade England whenever the king is out. And when the king leaves the house, they run in and take, try to take stuff. 
So that's bad. That's a real threat that has happened before and is probably going to happen again. Yep. So she was made regent, which is an enormous responsibility, mm-hmm. I think. I mean, men obeyed her commands. Her word was law. She could summon troops. She's got her mother as a role model Oh, here. yeah. So- she could sign warrants. She could demand money from the treasury. Uh, you know, and this was no hollow responsibility. This is not just a signature. Mm-hmm. She was the boss. So Henry VIII departed with a clever man named Thomas Wolsey, by the way, who will come in later. But it was tearful on both sides. It was just, it was like, I mean, he was excited to go be a man. Have fun storming the castle. Literally. <laughs> and so James IV of Scotland did start moving in, all looking in the air, whistling like, la, 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 I'm not doing anything. His toe's getting closer to the line. <laughs> la, 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 these men, these women with, with me? No, they're just my dudes. We're just, uh, we're hunting. That's what we're doing. All these guys, uh, you know, these flags, we just like flags. We're not doing anything. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. So she had to get her crap in a row. So instead of being busy sewing banners, which is what she told Henry VIII she was doing, this is wifely, I'm going to sew some banners and make some, you know, standards and blah, blah, blah. Okay, no, she's preparing to defend the country. Okay, she commanded three separate bodies of men and actually rode out to the battle. She didn't ride into battle. That's not appropriate. No. For a warrior queen. She was there. She saw, you know, she saw what was going on. She was out on the site. And um, they did lose one castle, so that's a bummer. But um, they won a decisive, decisive battle against the Scots. Yay! And, in fact, Catherine was able to send Henry VIII the coat of the dead King James of Scotland as a trophy. Here's a present for you, honey. Ah! Here's the coat of the dead. She, she wanted to send him King James, but people were like, that's, that's not what we do. But Henry VIII was over in France trying to accomplish some things. And his, he had some victories, mm-hmm. dismissively called dog holes. <laughs> I'm so glad you won over, over those ridiculous dog holes, is what somebody basically said, treasonously. Yeah. Diminishing his, like, Success. this woman yes. just defended the country. And you're over here messing around. But she's Scarlett O'Hara. Like, thank you for doing the dishes. <laughs> you are such a good husband. I really appreciate you um, storming those castles in France while I was doing the hard work at home. But no, she kept it on side. That's right. Yeah, she, you, she... I love that 50s housewife. Yeah. That is so her. <laughs> anyway, yes. So she managed him well. The trouble was others were getting pretty good at managing it, too. Wolsey had become indispensable in France. And things that Henry VIII would automatically have normally taken to her, he started kind of taking to him. And her. by the time he came back, he was harder. He'd seen things. You know, he'd been famous. He was a man. So let's take a little break. And when we come back, we will explore the rest of Catherine of Aragon's life. Now, Henry's been off in France. Having his little battles. Thinking he's a man. Listening to Thomas Woolsey whispering in his ear. And then he comes back to England. And you know, he realizes something, much to his chagrin. All of his battles that he thought he was furthering the cause and being a player on the world stage. Catherine of Aragon's papa had been using him as a distraction, keeping France occupied on one side of the country, while in fact Spain was dealing with something on the other side of the country. And he was so mad and he felt so betrayed by that, that he just, oh, what am I going to do? I'm going to marry my sister to the king of France. How about that? What the heck? Well, 
Yeah. <laughs> so that was a big, yeah. serious deal. So now, now we're friends with France because like we that. can't be friends with Spain because well, Spain messed us over. Yeah. So <laughs> betrayed us. We had a treaty. No. Trick or treaty. <laughs> so Catherine had to choose her side, and obviously she chose her husband's side because she's no stupid person, and so she proves her loyalty to England and stays on his side. And a miracle happened. She's 30 years old, and she has a little girl. Yay! Who lives? Yay! That's fantastic. Little Mary is born, and um, she will be the only, even though there's, like I said before, two more pregnancies, she's the only one that makes it. I know. Henry took it in stride. He says, oh, well, sons will follow. So not seven months later, irritatingly, uh, Henry VIII's playmate, Bessie Blunt, had a baby boy that she presented to her sovereign as his child named Henry. Hmm. So the queen had to take it on the chin, and she did. She kept it all inside again, like she always does. Okay. She even went to his birthday celebration, like, welcome to the world, baby Henry. I don't know how she could do it. Good well, for her. She could do it because she learned how to do it from her mama. Mm-hmm. Ferdinand was dipping his wick all over the place. All right. <laughs> you heard it here first. Susan and the euphemisms. The wick dipping of the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> Band name. So, Catherine was renowned for her charity. She was always very queenly. She famously saved the life of 300 poor wretches that had been brought before her husband with ropes around their necks on their way to execution, fell on her knees and begged him to please forgive them their sins and please do not execute them. And he acceded to her wishes. And she got all the credit for being the loving, charitable lady. It was great. She has some good PR at this point. She's being a really good queen. She's very regal. She's very controlled. She is. And Erasmus, the great thinker of Europe, said, and I quote, about Henry and Catherine at this time, what family of citizens offers so clear an example of harmonious wedlock? Where could one find a wife more keen to equal her admirable spouse? But the fact is, the court behind the scenes was kind of splitting. Mm-hmm. There was the frat party on one side and the theologians on the other side. So there's these soup kitchen with a bachelor party going on outside of it, <laughs> working in harmony. Not really. <laughs> they even called themselves the Minions, those frat boys over in Henry's. They uh, called themselves the Minions. <laughs> is that funny? That's a contemporary reference if I ever heard one. Yeah. That's funny. So yeah. the original Minions. So the relationship between Henry and Catherine gradually became one of deep respect, even still love, you know, but not the admiration they once had, the once had before. Catherine put her energies into her daughter Mary, and Henry put his energies into another Mary, who had arrived in the court as a lady-in-waiting. Do we see a pattern? It's stable. It's a stable. Mary Boleyn. Mary Boleyn. Now, just... Take a little brief moment to think about the other Boleyn girl, the movie where Mary is portrayed as this sweet, innocent. Not so much. She was schooled in the ways of the mattress. All right. You had another delicate terminology there. But she's, yeah. So Henry takes up with Mary Boleyn. Which has got to be hard on Catherine, too. Oh, right. It's right under her nose. So it's kind of hard on Catherine to have to pretend every day, this big game, that this isn't happening behind the scenes. In fact, her husband is dedicating warships 
to this woman, showering her with jewels, and he's starting to get irritated that he doesn't have an heir. He has tried to pin all his hopes on perhaps his daughter Mary will marry a good man and their grandchild will be his heir. Right. And, you know, that's all he can really hope for at but this point. Mary's not anywhere near marrying age. She's totally small, and her affianced husband, who is Spanish, decides he can't wait for Mary to grow up, and he marries someone else, which sends Henry into a bit of a rage. Okay, I'm not going to have this heir. I'm going to have to make a new one. And so his little son, Henry Fitzroy, Bessie Blunt's little boy, he makes into a duke. Duke of Richmond. He sets him up as if he's going to be taking over at some point. Well, Henry Fitzroy, I think, was the final straw for Catherine of Aragon because at the same time that he set up the Duke of Richmond, he sent his daughter to Wales to take up her own establishment. She's nine years old. Now, in Henry's mind, well, princesses of Wales, although she didn't have that title, what I say, but Mm -hmm. princesses should learn their trade in Wales like people do in my family. Let's go. It's legitimate, I think, in his mind, or he's trying to pretend it is. If he's going to set up this Duke of Richmond, he has to set up his daughter of equal status. She has to have her own household. A big household, in fact, with great honors, but far away. And Catherine lost her crap for the first time, I think, in their marriage. Uh She was sad. She was angry. And she did not regard this as equal status. She regarded this as a punishment for her and for her daughter. Right. Well, she she didn't do the one thing that Henry wanted her to do. I'm not defending Henry VIII. Well, and I'm just really thinking, though, in his mind, it was an equal status thing. I don't really think. And if he was going to raise up Fitzroy to be his heir Mm -hmm. at all, if that was even in his mind, he wasn't thinking of replacing his wife. No. Because obviously that was like, all right, the Spanish window has closed for Mary. Right. Let's make a backseat plan. I don't think it included getting rid of Queen Catherine at all at this point. Or else why bother with the Duke of Richmond? Right. But, you know, that's just me. No, I can see that. So when she was 40, they reconciled for a very brief period of calm, dignified entertainments, progresses, meals, and then something very bad happened. Enter the woman that Henry is going to fall in love with. Yet another lady-in-waiting for the queen and the sister of his former mistress, Mary Boleyn, it's Anne Boleyn. She arrives on the scene fresh from France where she's learned how to dress and how to talk and how to be French. She was totally Frenchified. <laughs> and we'll talk about her a little bit more um, in, her, in her own little podcast. But um, Anne Boleyn hits the, it hits the scene and Henry falls hard for her. And her arrival coincided with doubts that Henry was having about the legitimacy of his marriage. Mm-hmm. Like, why can I not have sons with this woman? And he focused on, oh, ho! It's because she was married to my brother. I must be offending God. Yeah, he pulls out some um, biblical references in Leviticus that says that you can't marry your brother's wife. You can't marry... So he's thinking that God is punishing him. This is what he's saying. So he he's saying that God is punishing him with no sons because he married his brother's wife. What part of his body was talking? I don't know because Anne Boleyn is denying him. She does not want the same path that her sister had. She wants to be the queen. 
So she's denying him everything except uh, flirtation, I would right. say. So Henry decides he is going to ask for an annulment. And he tries to keep that from Catherine for a long time. Um, although she has an extensive spy network. She's no shrinking violet. She's not a diplomat for nothing. She knew about it for a year that something was going down. But can you imagine the shock? Uh, can you imagine the shock? Like, all of a sudden, she's going to be replaced by this person who she was ready to just accept as another ridiculous mistress and let it go on and then let it be over. Um, Anne Boleyn was no slouch either because she didn't want Henry to tell Catherine about this because she said that if Catherine and Henry talked, Catherine would have the upper hand. (laughs) So at least she knew her enemy. Yeah. But Henry anticipated smooth sailing. Seemed like a clear path to him. He had the Bible he thought on his side, and other monarchs had put wives aside in order for to beget heirs. You know, right. um, Louis the Twelfth of France, for example, and he didn't think it would be a big deal. We'll just make it happen. And when he gathered up his courage and finally told her that after eighteen years they had no legal marriage and never did, Catherine pulled out a secret weapon that she hadn't ever used before and weeped copiously all over him and he got so uncomfortable he bailed out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> so Anne was right that Henry got nothing. Yeah. When it comes to you know Anne knew women. Mm-mm. She knew how they worked, that's for sure. You know, I always thought at this point that Catherine of Aragon was just stubborn and, like, held on to this obviously dead marriage out of some pride or something. Mm-hmm. And I never really gave her the credit. I mean, I'm always like, please, just can you just not call it? Now, that's hindsight, because now we see if she had called it right now right. and agreed how much easier things would have gone for everybody. Yes. But at the time, she thought that she was protecting his soul, protecting the English people's soul, because with Anne and her boobage and her (laughs) fabulousness came the Reformation. Mm -hmm. Anne's people were all about fixing the Catholic Church. Right. Which Catherine thought was perfectly fine. So so Catherine is protecting the English people from Mm -hmm. the Protestants. Catherine is protecting her daughter, Catherine is protecting herself. Mm-hmm. Catherine is protecting the institution of marriage and that big golly whopper of a lie that maybe that she told about not having consummated her first marriage is what she's hanging everything on. Well, she's far, I have to say, she's far from alone. You get this image, especially when you watch the Tudors, that there she is sitting in a stone room by the fireplace all alone. But secretly or openly, she had a lot of supporters. And she had this network of spies and informers back to Spain. Um, her nephew even had the Pope as his prisoner. So take that. Yeah. How about that, <laughs> my king? You know, how about that for the chess big, game? Big, big chess game. Um, and simultaneously, she still sewed his shirts and was polite to him in front of people. Yeah, that's the thing that amazes me. They were both very civil to one another. Maybe it's because they had so much history together. Maybe mm. it's because Henry thought, oh, this is just a little glitch. We'll get over this. This is what God wants me to do. I don't know. Now, let's just, we're not going to cover the intricacies of the divorce proceedings because it could take a whole podcast. But they're complicated and fraught with back and forth. And let's just say she used theatrical monologues, persuasion, logic, politics, religion, guilt, like all the weapons at her disposal. Ultimately, Uh, she was not 
successful because Henry said, fine, if the church isn't going to grant me this, then I'm going to split from the church. This is, this is like 30 second summary of a big chunk of history, but, um, he's, they split from the Catholic church and he becomes the head of the church of England. Yeah. And ultimately Henry VIII had a greater weapon than she had. And that is indifference. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, Anne's yes. practically the queen. She's been required, Catherine, to give her jewels to this person. She would send him a letter of, you know, goodbye, you know, have a nice trip or whatever, and he would send it back. Like, why are you bothering Don't with bother this? Me. He sent her away to castle after castle after castle, and his... His aim was to get people used to seeing Anne sitting in that chair, Anne wearing the jewels, Anne, Anne being the right. queen. Anne Just is to in get court, her out of the way, playing queen, mm-hmm. while Catherine, who was still queen and still loved by the people, the people loved her. They did. She was a queenly queen. She was not an evil queen by any stretch of the imagination. Mm. She stood for all that was good and holy, and she was heading up the soup kitchen. And here's this girl. Showing off her things. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, trying to take over and play queen. Well, and then he was so dastardly. I hate him for this. There was a little visit they had. 15-year-old Mary and Mama were visiting, and he separated them. He told Catherine she was to go one place, and Mary was to go back home. And they never saw each other again after Henry VIII had separated them. These mother and daughter that were so close and loved each other so much, they desperately missed each other. And Henry VIII just said, well, admit I'm the head of the church. Admit that you are now the Dowager Princess of Wales and have never been the queen. Admit your daughter's a bastard. And Ollie Oxenfree, come on back. And, of course, they're not going to do that. No. Mary's not going to admit that she's not a princess of, you know, the country. She's been the princess her whole life. Right. And the queen is certainly not going to say, oh, I was just the king's hoe for 20-some years. No. Yeah. There's nothing in it for her to do Mm -hmm. that other than to see her daughter again. But even that wasn't enough. I mean, she she overlooked so much. She overlooked all of his infidelities. She stood by him when it came up against her dad. And now this. She can't take it. It's too much. So the king married Anne Boleyn in secret because Anne Boleyn was pregnant. And to get a legitimate child, you must be married to the mother. And he's the head of the church, and he can do what he wants. And he had already declared his marriage with Catherine invalid, and his new one was legitimate, as far as he's concerned. Yeah. Although the rest of Europe begged to differ. Yeah, well, (laughs) yeah. And the Archbishop of Canterbury had declared his marriage valid. Because the Archbishop of Canterbury was paid by Henry. (laughs) But... Like, it's oranges and apples fighting over which is the better fruit. Henry is convinced this is the way it is. It doesn't matter. He's the king. That's it. So his poor wife, Catherine, I'm going to say she's still his wife. Yes. As many, many, many people did, in fact, Mm -hmm. by the way, is basically sent from castle to castle in increasingly deplorable conditions something that she's lived through before. She's like, oh, okay. Well, but coldly denied access to her daughter, even when her daughter was almost mortally ill. The king, eh. I don't know. You know what to do. Sign the thing or, or lump it. Yeah. Basically. And when she was 50, on Christmas Day, she began her last serious illness, very, very serious illness, 
Her friend, the Spanish ambassador, rode 90 miles in the cold, this is winter, to see her uh, without permission from the king, right. by the way. So good for and him. I think the Tudors, the TV show, did, does this part very good because the Spanish ambassador is was very much in touch with Catherine mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah, he had been there so long. And she, at this point, so interestingly, she is in her final illness and she expressed doubts as to whether she'd done the right thing. All that, my point exactly, though, like she wondered if she'd gone into a nunnery when this all first started, Henry wouldn't have fought with the Pope, mm-hmm. the country wouldn't be in religious turmoil, the monasteries might not be closed. And see, when you close monasteries... Um, you kind of remove the the aid for the poor right. that the monasteries mm-hmm. used to give, mm-hmm. the the traveler help that they used mm-hmm. to give. Like you're removing a lot of the support system for the poor if right. you take the monasteries down. She was wondering if she had ruined the country by her decision to stand Which by this marriage. Means she was a really good queen. She was thinking of her country, not just of her adopted country. At that, so that was kind of her last um, her last thought was of her people, it was forbidden for women who have a living husband to write a will. So all she wrote down was a list of requests for, you know, certain things to be given to Mary of clothes, um, where she'd like to be buried, which he disregarded completely. Just little things like that, like, please say messes for my soul and this and that. She got worse and worse. She had stomach pain and she was sleepless and it's thought perhaps, that she died of stomach cancer. But she did die uh, a couple weeks after Christmas on January 7th, 1536. Still the queen, as far as the people of England were concerned. Regardless of the dowager princess of Wales title that Henry insisted on thrusting upon her. And that she was buried with. Mm -hmm. And as a matter of fact, on her tomb, a much, much later, um, I want to say 19th century Memorial says Catherine the Queen, but up until then it didn't say Catherine the Queen. And upon hearing the news of her death, Anne Boleyn wore yellow joyfully and very happily at a party and celebrated Ding Dong the Witch is Dead. Nice. Basically. And, oh well, sorry to tell you this, Anne, but four months from now, you will meet a similar demise, although yours won't be nearly as, as isolated and private. And the people aren't going to be with you. But more on that another time. So that has been Catherine of Aragon, the uh, one of the unhappiest queens toward um, the end that I have ever read mm, about. I know. Um, you can follow Catherine of Aragon on Twitter. Um, there's it. Actually, this woman doesn't have a whole lot of um, followers yet, so maybe you guys can go follow her if you'd like some Catherine of Aragon history dropped into your Twitter feed every day. It's Cat underscore of underscore Aragon, and we will um, link you up up to that. (laughs) (laughs) So let's follow all of them on Twitter. I have a couple of book recommendations. The author, Julia Fox, has written a book called Sister Queens, The Noble Tragic Lives of Catherine of Aragon and Juana, Queen of Castile. That's her slightly older sister. That gives you some great insight into the family life. Of Catherine of Aragon. Also, Antonia Fraser's classic, The Wives of Henry VIII, which is such a classic. This is a library book, and it is as wrecked as if that's, it were my own book. And that it, almost looks like your um, 
to marry an English lord book. I know, but I had nothing to do with the destruction <laughs> of this book. It was okay. this way when I got it. I hope they, I hope they believe me. And then, um, The Constant Princess by Philippa Gregory is, in the vein of the other Boleyn girl, which she also wrote, a historical fiction that might be a good entry into reading about Catherine of Aragon. So if you read the fiction first and then go to some of the other sources, the classic Netflix streaming David Starkey, The Monarchy, also another resource for this yeah, podcast and so many others. Yeah, we have quite a few resources already um, up for the other Tudor episodes that we've done. If you want, we can link it, get the links for that. On and David Starkey also has a book called The Wives, The Six Wives of Henry VIII. Do you have any website? I don't have any new ones. I mean, just the ones that we've talked about before. Um, and of co- my absolute, my favorite as far as quick but detailed is luminarium.org. It's got quick but very detailed synopsises of their lives with links to all the other things that were going on. So if, you, if you're reading about Catherine of Aragon, you can read about Ferdinand and Isabella. And so I re- that's the site I like the best. And so um, I would like to close with a quote from the last letter of Queen Catherine to her husband as she saw him, King Henry VIII. And I quote, My most dear lord, king, and husband, the hour of my death is approaching. I cannot choose, but out of the love I bear you, advise you of your soul's health, which you ought to prefer before considerations of the world, for which yet you have cast me into many calamities and yourself into many troubles. I forgive you all and pray God to do so likewise. Lastly, I make this vow that mine eyes desire you above all things. Farewell. Very sad. It is. That's a lot of words to say when you've got a massive tumor in your internal organs. Well, it was dictated, (laughs) I'm sure. She never lost hope, and she put her faith definitely in an unworthy source. And for that, I feel very bad for Catherine of Aragon. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you learned a lot. We sure did. And we will see you next time. Bye. For show notes and links to the things we talked about today, please visit us at thehistorychicks.com. Follow us on Twitter at The History Chicks with, with an X. X. Or like us on Facebook without an X. If you'd like us in real life, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on iTunes. The music in our podcast comes courtesy of Music Alley. Visit them at music.mevio.com. Getting buried underneath a crumbling castle While the pretty kingdom you built so falls down Once you treated me like royalty That doesn't mean anything now that you've stripped away the crown I'm Who was that little girl who gave in so quickly To the notion that a prince could make my life sound And as I ride away into the west My only regret is maybe to build my own damn house